a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Nathan Romus with you. Today, we're going to be talking about missing persons, police response, and what we can do better. For that, I have Vanier scholar Lorna Ferguson on the program. Lorna is a PhD candidate at the Western University and is the founder of the Missing Persons Research Hub. She's an award-winning criminologist who has dedicated over nine years to studying crime and criminal justice and working in this field. Her research interests pertain to policing and developing evidence-based approaches to policing and crime prevention. Her specialization is police responses to missing person cases. This research aims to fill in knowledge gaps on police work in this area, and it focuses on investigating what works, what doesn't work, and what we still don't know in terms of most effectively and efficiently searching for and investigating missing persons. With her research, outreach, and the Missing Persons Research Hub, her ultimate goals are improving scholarship in this field and preventing and reducing missing persons. So welcome, Lorna. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Um, every time I read these people's bios, I feel like I'm running out of breath. Everyone's got such a, a resume. I don't know what I would put for mine. <laughs> it's just it would just say police. That's it. I just I'm a cop. That was a mouthful, but basically I study <laughs> crime, missing persons, and policing. That's pretty much the synopsis there. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're going for your PhD. Um, as you're saying just before uh we started the recording, you're in your last year. Um, what's kind of on the horizon after that? So once you get the PhD, uh what are you do you apply somewhere or do you have something in mind that you're gonna start on your own? Yeah. I mean, that's a million dollar question. Sometimes I tell people don't ask me that because it will make me cry. There's a lot to do before my PhD is done. But at the moment, I'm just finishing up my dissertation, um, which is a book on police search and rescue. And then I'm also looking at postdoc programs. So continuing my research on missing persons and search and rescue and also looking at jobs. So my ultimate goals are obviously to work in academia, get a professorship, continue to do work in the space and collaborate with a number of awesome people like yourself and other police officers and other researchers. Um, so I don't really intend on going anywhere, but the next steps is a big question mark right now. So definitely figuring that out over the next year. Yeah. I guess you never really know what comes along. Like something happens one month or one week and you know, you kind of have a different trajectory or different interests. So exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, so Let's start at the beginning. Uh, if you can kind of tell us about yourself, where you're from, and just a bit about growing up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I'm actually from Scotland. I grew up in Scotland and immigrated to Canada when I was 13. So um, I don't think I have much of an accent anymore, but maybe the awkward, <laughs> I say something a little bit funny. I don't hear it at all. No. Yeah. Good. Yeah, I worked hard on that. So yeah, so I grew up in Scotland, immigrated to Canada, went through the kind of traditional route of schooling, you know, uh, growing up, getting into Western University, where I have stayed for the last decade, so not left there. Um, Started at Western doing my honours in criminology, then my master's in sociology, and now my PhD in sociology, focusing on the intersection to criminology and missing persons. Okay. Outside of that, 
I do, I'm a tattoo artist on the side. I have three big fluffy dogs. I do a bunch of volunteer and activist work. And um, yeah, I have a whole bunch of research positions. So I'm a busy bee. I think my supervisor, Dr. Laura Hughes, she calls me chaos monkey. So I'm involved in a lot of stuff, but that's, that's the three minute elevator pitch on, on my life right there. Well, that's quite the range and tattoo artist on the side. So what, what kind of got you into that before we get into missing person stuff? Yeah. Why tattooing? Actually, I wasn't going to go do the whole traditional academic route. I hated school for a very long time. I didn't feel like the way that I thought worked that way. And so I was a very creative person. I love to do art and and build things and woodwork and paint and draw. Um, And I was very drawn to all things deviance. I like to be a little bit of a uh, rebel, which is actually how I landed up in missing persons research, but I'm sure we'll get there. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I I liked the edgy style. And so combining the creative with rebelling against school and that kind of normal path um, landed me doing tattoo work. So um, I don't do it anymore, but I still have my my equipment. So just in case this doesn't work out, you know, it's a good plan B. Yeah. And at least in Edmonton, there seems like there's tattoo places everywhere. So mm-hmm. between that liquor stores and cannabis shops, that's pretty much all we've got on every corner. But uh, yeah, so you, so you weren't a big fan of school. Well, how, how were you in school, you know, as you were growing up, like, were you just barely passing or is it something that you just never attended? No, yeah, I never attended, but I actually ended up in high school graduating with uh, an honors. So it just, I'm just one of those people that I I fall upwards, I guess. But yeah, um, high school was a bit of a drag. I think that's true for everyone. And then undergraduate, I just dragged myself through it. Like it was, it was a struggle, but I ended up making it through. And then I met Laura, um, who roped me into the master's program. And I think when I got into the master's program, everything really aligned, like the approach to study and research and application and the crazy intelligent minds that you meet in the field. Um, you know, it was very inspiring and actually things started to kind of click for me at that point. So, I mean, of course the undergrad was amazing. I learned so much and met a lot of great people, but I just think that it didn't really fit with my learning style, but the master's program did and that applied research, applied learning environment did as well. So that's why I decided to keep on keeping on with the research and in science and schooling path. And now, like I said, I've been in school for or post-secondary school for over a decade. So I clearly <laughs> like it. It's, it's some part of me does. Um, yeah. No, I actually love what I do now, but it was a struggle to get here for sure. Well, so um, yeah, when you get in there, I, I just remember like my undergrad and I thought it was a drag too. And I did a degree in finance marketing. Um, Oh boy. And I used it for a little bit. And then I was like, I need something that's outside the office. And I went into policing. So, but it's funny that you, yeah, like you're saying, you spend another decade <laughs> doing policing in addition to your first uh, years. So um, maybe we'll kind of move into a bit on some of the work you've been doing. Can you tell us like where, where this all kind of started for you getting into the missing persons field? And did you have any, um, is there like a family connection there or a personal connection in any way into the missing persons world? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, like I said, I was a little bit of a rebel. I was one of those um, teenagers that liked to avoid all of the rules. And if you gave me a rule, I would do the opposite of it. So 
Um, I actually ended up going missing several times. I consistently ran away and I actually really enjoyed it. Like it was exciting. And of course I was one of the lucky ones that didn't have negative experiences when I did, you know, go missing, run away. But I know that a lot of people have not had those experiences. And so it was really interesting when I started going through the education process, seeing how other people's experiences were so different from mine, oh. uh, looking at the intersections and the different social conditions that affect different phenomenon. And with missing persons being a troubled uh, youth runaway is what the police would call me. Um, you know, it's interesting to see how people's stories fall out from there and how mine didn't and how I was able to, um, you know, keep going and and get myself out of that space and, and get myself on the right track and how others might not have. Mm. Um, so that was one of the things that really linked me to it. And then in the policing space, there's in Canada, the research is not strong. So there's a lot of gaps in the research and policing. And so as a student, when you enter into your master's, you can kind of pick from a bunch of different topics, even if there's saturation in some areas, um, there's still a lot that needs to be done. Right. So the U S landscape and policing research is so much better, but in Canada, we're working on it. And so I had to figure out in my master's what it was that I wanted to study and how I wanted to go about that. Laura came to me with a bunch of different topics. She's like, I'm studying victimization. I've looked at homelessness. I look at police process, police reform, police work. And this, these are, you know, crime analysts, there's spatial analysis, there's all these things. And, um, one of them was missing persons. And I'm like, aha, that's the one. Um, and she spoke about how there's no work happening really in the academic space on missing persons. And so it just kind of felt like a, a moment where I was like, oh yes, this is the one for me. It felt like, you know, the universe is calling, calling to me to figure it out and, and work in this area. So okay, that's my little story. Yeah. A little bit of personal experience, a little bit of guidance from um, my academic mentor. Um, and here I landed. Oh, nice. Well, and why do you think that is though, that there's so little research in, in this field? And I would kind of even equate it to a lot of things in policing right now. It's like they, we have no Canadian statistics on use of force. We have no statistics on missing persons. Like all the research we get for almost everything comes from the U.S. So why is that? Is that, is that a function of uh, just academia? Is that maybe academia and police never thought to talk to each other in this country. Mm -hmm. Where's, where's that gap? Oh boy, that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> there's so many, there's so many ways I could answer this. I mean, it's interesting coming from the UK um, and then into Canada, it was almost like um, Canada was about 10 years behind what was happening in the UK with different things. Like, and law enforcement was one of those spaces. And I'm not saying that the UK is better. I'm just saying that the parallels um, between the different ways in which, you know, things are approached compared to like Canada, Canada compared to the UK, um, Canada's playing a lot of catch up. Yeah. Um, and it's the same when you even compare it to the U S I've started to realize that the older I got as well, that Canada kind of follows what the U S does in some ways. So I think part of it is, um, incentive. There's not a lot of incentive in Canada for academics. A lot of the awards and acknowledgements and the big universities and the, the the big degrees and the applied research really is out of the UK and the US. And because of that, 
researchers go where there's going to be recognition, there's going to be opportunity, there's going to be funding for their work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there needs to be a larger body of incentives in Canada for this work. There's also, you know, particular pockets of research that are focused on in Canada that are really strong, like demography or inequality or um, different areas of sociology. And those are incentivized, but there's also the programs for it. There's the universities for it. There's the jobs for it. Okay. And for that reason, um, we don't really have that in Canada, right, for policing. We don't have it for missing persons at all. We don't have it for a number of different topics. And that's not to say the landscape isn't changing, but when you're carving a path, it could take several decades for that that stuff to start showing up. And so that's another thing is that there just simply isn't this space for people to do it. Um, and then just like you said, there's a a bit of a disconnect between what academics are doing and what police are doing. And sometimes there's not a lot of conversation between the two. And so, again, I think that's changing with that global movement towards evidence-based policing, that academics and police are starting to talk to each other, collaborate, share data, um, work on projects. I've seen so many great innovative projects come from those situations, but yeah, we're playing catch up. We're getting there. It's yeah. happening. And it's, and it's slow, just like all change in society and in policing, especially, um, is slow. Um, but that's my, my kind of three big answers. It's the lack of incentives to do it, the lack of space to do it, and the lack of, um, you know, big opportunities and ways and willingness to collaborate. Yeah. Well, and you know what, this, this seems like such a huge field. When I was looking through your website, uh, through the Missing Persons Research Hub, I didn't even realize there's so many, uh, aspects to a missing person file my own experience is like taking a patrol call and then you go out there and you kind of um they used to give like a checklist and it was like you know here's 50 things to think about when you're investigating a missing person some apply some don't apply depending on the scenario but he always just kind of looked at it as uh, it's just a missing person but it was actually broken down on the website I'll, i'll just read off a few of the the I guess, areas they'd be called. So there's elders, forensics and tech, indigenous people, legislation, policy, media, police response, psychology, runaways, search and rescue, VP, chronic cases, and sociology. Like I never would have thought there was all these aspects to uh, uh, a missing person file. So, Mm -hmm. and that's just missing persons. Now you think of all the other things that police deal with. There's a million other topics um, we definitely could use a lot of the academics uh, uh, working on these things. So the collaboration is a, a big part that I would like to see more of. Mm-hmm. And um, I know there are some people working within uh, one of the universities here. Uh, we have a couple uh, retired members who are working in there. We have uh, my current sergeant. He works in uh, in there and they teach different courses or programs. So there is slowly kind of that collaboration building. I just think uh, maybe academia and policing never (laughs) didn't really get along for a little while. So, Mm -hmm. but yeah, it's definitely an important body of work that is missing out there. Do you, uh, when you talk about the funding and stuff, so what kind of funding is available for somebody who wants to go into your field? I mean, the short answer is none. I mean, there's always, always external bodies that you can apply to, but a lot of that is based on you know, your outputs as a researcher, your leadership potential, the collaborations you, ha- you have, your status as a researcher too. 
um, and any other, you know, considerations that you can bring to that application. Broadly speaking, there isn't any funding pots dedicated to missing persons work, uh, search and rescue work, and even, you know, we're only starting to see some funding available specifically to research and development and policing. And so if that's where we're at with policing more broadly, you can imagine that um, missing persons and specifically is, is even further behind that. It's even less on a on a priority list. So, and I did want to touch base on what you said about the different areas for, mm. for missing persons, you know, yep. the, the contention, well, not contention, but the disconnect between academics and, and policing is not just on one side. Like police want to hold on to what they have going on because if they open up that door, they could be up for critique or, you know, challenge or, a whole bunch of work that requires, you know, changing organizational practices. Yeah. But academics too are, are really not good at talking to the public and other people and, and engaging in applied research and partnerships. They like to sit in their ivory tower, which I'm sure everyone has heard before, <laughs> um, and not get out boots to the ground, talk to people. And I'm not saying that, that I'm generalizing. It's a very generalized statement, but across the board, you know, it, it it does exist for a lot of different academic spaces where people don't get out and engage with the populations that they're studying. And so just on the note of lack of collaboration, it's definitely not just police closing their doors. It's definitely also academics keeping their doors closed, you know? So that makes me think of like, uh, I don't know if you listen to Gad Sad, but he talks about that quite a bit. Mm-hmm. He's a professor in Montreal. Um, he just talks about how, I guess, peer-reviewed papers. So when you have a peer-reviewed paper, that's a big gauge of how uh, good your work is and respected. But he goes on like Joe Rogan and has a million people listen to what he's saying. Mm-hmm. He has a lot of peer reviewed stuff too, but he says like, you know, we need to get out and spread the message or talk about what, you know, the things that we're doing. And I guess he gets criticized for that. And they say, well, no, it's peer reviewed is the, you know, the big thing, the way to go. He goes, but I have a million people listen to me and maybe a hundred or a thousand people, you know, read your work. So why wouldn't I go on that big platform? Right. Mm-hmm. So there is, you know, some people reaching out. This is actually something I talked to uh, Nick Carlton. Uh, he was on the show before and he's working with the RCMP mm-hmm. and SIPCERT and they're doing a whole PTSD study with the Mounties at uh, right out of depot. And that was something that came up in the conversation with him was, why, you know, how, or how do we best get this out to the public? Like I can write a really nice paper, but it's going to be in a language that most people aren't going to understand. So how do I get that message out there? And you kind of need, need those, um, is go betweens between the public and the people writing the really smart stuff. <laughs> so yeah, I, I can see where the, the struggle is there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, a blog post on the Missing Persons Research Hub reaches over 10,000 people. And then mm-hmm. one of my papers sits in an academic journal and gets 38 downloads over the years. So wow. it, it's just about re, re-incentivizing the different areas in academia. Like like you said, the gold standard is these publications. But, um, you know, for the people that, that, that we're researching and the groups that we're affecting with their research, that's not the gold standard. They need it in accessible, short formats. They need it yeah. actionable. They need it, um, you know, translated in a way that makes sense beyond just academic nonsense. And um, what I what do, what do I call it? Like alpha alphabet soup. I think is the way that statistics is described. Yeah, yeah. and you know, and that's just that's an, an issue with the academic system. And I don't know if that's going to change, but 
it does connect to why policing research is is um, behind or not not too much of it in Canada because of that issue. You were talking about evidence-based policing a bit earlier. Can you kind of describe that just for some of the listeners who aren't familiar with that, kind of what it is and, and why we use it? Mm-hmm. So evidence-based policing is basically the use of quality science for informing police practice and policy development. And when you use the word evidence and evidence-based policing, it doesn't mean evidence like clues, witness statements like you do in policing. It means research evidence. So you take this body of research, not just one singular study, but a body of research, and you translate that into improving policing. Um, So that connects to the conversation we just had on solutions and blog posts and knowledge translation. It's taking all of the work that's happened, let's say, on missing persons coming up with the key thematic areas, the key solutions, what's been verified over uh, a a life of a body of research and saying, here's how you can make things better or do things differently, or here's what works, here's what you're doing great, keep on with that. Um, Or here's how we can talk about prevention, here's how we can talk about reduction of crime or missing person or whatever it may be. So um, simply using science to inform policing, I think it's the best way to put it. Yeah. I like that. I like that answer. It's better than anything I would have ever given. But also, uh, it's it's talking about like the the real factual data. Um, this is one thing that I always hate when I watch like anything on TV or I read any news. They just take random statistics and they just quote them, and that's the gospel, right? And then that's what the public believes. So it's it's looking at like the like you said the body of research and and all of it and everything in totality. Is kind of that's the important part of it. So, yeah, I think that was, that was a really good explanation of it. Um, it's almost like you invented it. Oh, I did not. <laughs> Definitely not. I do actually have a story about that cherry picking yeah. of, of evidence. So, um, one of my co-authors and I, Jack, uh, wrote a paper on what the state of the research is on firearms in Canada. And it talked about all of the studies that are out there. It was called it's basically like a, a systematic review of the literature. Mm-hmm. We came up with all these different themes that we found in the literature, the key findings. And we did an assessment of what the state of the literature was. And we said, the state of the literature, um, there's basically not enough research on it to inform legislation. And that uh, the research that is there out there is is not conclusive, right? We don't know if firearms legislation does impact crime, safety, well-being of communities in Canada. And so, mm. you know, that's a really big question. If we don't have the research on it, how do we inform legislation? And so the gun blog yeah. took that that paper and wrote a series of of blogs and comments on how uh, new research shows that. Uh, gun legislation doesn't reduce crime and safety in Canada or doesn't reduce crime and safety or safety and well-being and or whatever doesn't reduce criminal incidents and improve safety in Canada. And I'm like, this is cherry picking findings um, to a T you can't, that's not what we said. We said there's not enough research on this stuff to show how it impacts legislation and the absence of evidence doesn't mean the, the evidence of absence. Yeah. And so I think it's about public education that's needed on how to read research articles, but it was such a strong lesson for me about how to communicate research findings, uh, especially on really hot button issues like firearms legislation. So 
little story about how how that happens and and how that can you know it really it grew legs it was all over reddit and facebook and i just <laughs> had to shut down my twitter for a second and not read the comments well that you know that's uh that's a really good point because two people can look at the exact same statistic and read it two completely different ways mm-hmm. and it's almost just what you're bringing into that that analysis and then what you're taking out of it um and I, it was kind of one of the questions I was going to ask is like, does any of your research get you into, do you start getting hate mail or do people start messaging you somehow or get a hold of you somehow? Like is, besides the firearms issue, has anything else kind of gotten attention, negative attention? Yeah, that's a great question. I think in the current climate for the last several years, policing researchers have been in a really interesting space where a lot of people are interested in what we're doing because there's been a ton of issues in policing, whether it was the George Floyd issue right up to defund the police movement and um, racism issues and uh, street check issues and, and data issues uh, and violence and use of force issues. So as a policing researcher, I was in this interesting space the last several years that so many people are interested in what you're doing and what you're saying. Hmm. And that's a unique space to be in because normally academics can kind of fly under the radar, do their work and, and choose the avenues at which people interact with their work. But in this space, that's not been the case. And there have of course been issues with that. And it makes sense, you know, as an academic, you should be critiqued. That's the whole point of science is to critique work, do better work and, and uh, improve the science uh, that is out there. But, you know, it's just, a, it was a highly contentious environment for, for a number of years. And, you know, as it should be, you know, these are fair, fair things to critique, but it becomes difficult to navigate and difficult to engage with. And so, um, yeah, it certainly has happened, but I think when you're engaged in applied research and you're actually, you know, committed to making changes and interacting with communities and, you know, organizations, government, nonprofit, police, um, people understand that you're there for the right reasons and that you're there to help and you make yourself available to help. And when you move through your work that way, um, you know, people understand that they can come to you with questions and concerns versus it being like a hate mail situation. Yeah. And then it collaborative and thinking about solutions together and, you know, having a, a nice conversation and discussion versus um, an argument or or getting attacked. And so that's how I approach my science is making sure that I'm available for those critiques and and having conversations and making sure that I just keep showing up to to you know communities, people, victims, families, um, and police to to let them know that I'm here to learn as well. So I don't know how other people approach their work, but I've certainly seen it where a lot of my academic colleagues have been canceled or critiqued or got hate mail especially online for sure. Well, yeah. And I just, I, I don't get why people would, uh, I don't know, be so mad about some things like that, because if anything, you're the closest thing to doing a study properly. Right. Whereas other people, it's (laughs) like, I took an online poll and it said this, and it's like, you don't know who's answering that or who even got it or who's responding. Maybe it's the same person responding 800 times. Right. So mm-hmm. it's just funny how people would get mad at the actual academic side, the science side, where you're doing the actual tests or running the numbers um, the proper way you're supposed to. Mm-hmm. So obviously it could be critiqued and it's like, oh, maybe we missed something or we have to go back and redo something because we didn't think of a, you know, a certain piece before. But 
you're the people to do that. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, that online poll, they're not going to go back and correct anything. So yeah, it's just kind of strange that people get so mad about everything nowadays, but I guess it's just kind of the world we live in. Um, so I just want to kind of move on to just the uh, missing persons research hub and uh, dive into this with you. Cause this was uh the website's got all kinds of things. Like I said earlier, I didn't realize there were so many aspects to it, but looking through the website, there are links to everything. There are journals, there are uh, uh, like just research documents. You can find everything on there. Mm-hmm. So how did this come to be? Like, how did you get the idea for this? And um, how'd you develop it? So just, it connects really well to what we were talking about, about my approach to doing science, which is engaging with everyone and anyone that I can and making sure that I'm um, doing work for the the people that I affect and for the organizations that I affect. And all of that work and talking to all the services that I've partnered with, all the people that I train, all the families and loved ones, I realized we're all doing, you know, a lot of great stuff in our pockets. You know, I'm doing great work over here and then people are doing great work over in um, BC. And then we have people doing great work over at the National Center for missing persons and unidentified remains, but we're not talking to each other. Where's where's the centralized spot for us to all meet up, share our information, share our resources, um, collaborate, have opportunities to network and collaborate, and uh, work together to improve the situation? And it just simply didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And other places do have centralized spots, like the NAM US database in the, the US, or the UK has missing people charity and police Scotland, for example, is that centralized space for all the policing in Scotland. So we needed it in Canada. And I just said, you know what, I'll, if it's not there, I'll make it there. And that's literally what happened. It was almost like I woke up one day and said, okay, let's just take a leap of faith and, and create it. And so I did. And I did it without resources, just voluntarily. I figured out how to work the website, how to code things. And and just started building it, and it's it, it grew legs. It started in the end of twenty or sorry twenty nineteen. It launched at the beginning of twenty twenty in January, and since then a lot of things have been added to it. And and you know I've received tons of great feedback and support for it, and it's been a highly valuable resource. And now it has over seven hundred members, over twenty different scholars involved with it. A number of police services have been roped into it. And you can see some of their work, podcasts, blog posts on the, the hub as well. Mm-hmm. And um, there's actually also a support page and support forum for the families and loved ones of the missing as well in there. So it has, yeah, it's been an amazing journey, I would say. Can people reach out through the website, say they got a, a missing person in their life and they they're like, hey, I don't I don't know if maybe is it like for people who are looking for an investigation to be done or can they say like one was done, but I'm just not sure if that, you know, maybe this piece was missing before. Do people reach out through there or they, they should just go to the police again and talk to them. Mm -hmm. So the, the hub is really an information and resource and research place. It's not a place for anything related to active investigations or people that, that do have um, families and loved ones that are missing. Of course, there's a support forum for that, and there's a resource page specifically for the families and loved ones of missing. But um, if there's anything that, like, there's concerns about someone's whereabouts or well-being, it should go to the police, of course. But if you need information, links to websites or apps or podcasts or blog posts or 
research or whatever it may be, um, that's what the hub is for. And, you know, of course, I'm happy to talk to people in the background and, and try and connect people if, if I can and be that kind of broker, relationship broker connection to, to other resources. But um, yeah, there's no active, you know, investigation tips on there because everything, everyone in Canada does something different. Every police service, every jurisdiction is different. And so there's not, there's, it would be misinformation if I put out any type of resource that guided investigation efforts. Cause that's just, you know, it's the nature of the situation in Canada. Yeah. Well, and I guess that kind of brings me out to one of the other things I was uh, going to ask was about police responses to missing persons. So what, uh, I guess going back to your bio, what, what are police doing good? What are they not doing good? And what could be, uh, what don't we know yet? No. Oh, yeah. That's a million dollar question. Okay. What's, what's, what's good? Well, what's good is that the, the field is changing. There's been a lot of interest in missing persons over the coming years, and it's long overdue. Like, we started with the first national inquiry in 2006, and then the most recent nas- or regional inquiry was with Epstein for the Toronto Police Service mm. in 2020. And the same issues were written in that inquiry as... Um, 2006. And even earlier than 2006, there were a number of different documents that were put out about the issues with police response to missing persons. So it's decades long overdue that certain changes are starting to happen. But the good news is those changes are happening, including development of risk assessment, looking at different response assessment tools, moving things uh, forward with technology, like developing apps for responses Hmm. or using technology in search and rescue, like drones and remote operated vehicles, stuff like that is happening. Uh, I'd say there's a lot more both regional and national collaboration ongoing. So regionally in Ontario, there's the National Centre for Unidentified Remains and Missing Persons is looking at starting a regional centre for Ontario specifically. And so it will be like a, uh, a messenger between the National Centre and the province of Ontario. So there's there's that going on. And then in BC, there's um, the the provincial legislation that helps guide missing persons efforts. And so these things are slowly turning. Um, the situation's improving. There's a lot of innovative work going on and a lot of different um, researchers have beginning to emerge and tackle different is- issues and, and work with the police. And so that collaboration is also going on. So those are the things that are working well. In terms of what doesn't work, there's so much. Like I've always said, and it's not to be, you know, pessimistic, but the situation in Canada with missing persons, it's sheer luck that it's not worse. Uh, mm. because some of the things that are happening across Canada in in policing and responding to missing persons is just like a it you know, it blows my mind because I don't know why the situation isn't way worse than it is, but I think we're lucky that most missing person reports are miscommunications or people returning within 48 hours and therefore not high risk. But when we have those outliers, those high risk cases or those cases involving, you know, criminal or foul play connections, that's when we start to see the cracks in the police response system. That's when we start to see the high profile incidents coming out and the critiques coming out and all of the issues um, in policing. And so I would spend the next 10 days explaining to you all those, those issues and the different nuances associated with it. But I will say um, I'm glad that the changes are happening because we do need it and we need more attention on this issue in Canada. So is it, um, I guess for the, the stuff that wasn't being done, 
uh, well, is that mostly the initial response? So when your first call comes in, just like the first 48 hours, uh, police aren't doing their uh, like certain steps that they should be? Or is it just kind of throughout, you know, as time goes on, they're missing stuff? Well, we don't have a national standardized framework for missing persons. And so it's really at every level, right? It can okay. be at the initial response. It can be over the course of a response. It can even be issues after a case is concluded with file management. It can be when cases are unresolved and they're cold cases and there's not regular follow-up with families and loved ones and active leads, not adding data or dental data or DNA to the data banks. Like those are issues happening at every level of the response process right down to even, you know, dispatching a call for service and the urgency assessment process for dispatch. Like there's, there, it begins with the, the, the call or the report being made yeah. and it should go right up until, you know, and, you know, even after a case is concluded or, or remains cold. So it's difficult to say. I think uh, when missing person calls come in, like unless there's something really exigent, like if it's a, an infant or, you know, child under 12 or, uh, I don't know, there's some other duress mentioned in a call, like a kidnapping. Um, if it's just, Hey, we haven't seen this person and we don't know where they are. Usually it's like a, a neighbor in an apartment. will call in and say, I talk to my neighbor every day. I haven't seen them, uh, for two days or three days. It's kind of strange. Those will come in as like a super low priority. Mm-hmm. It'd be like the last on the board. Um, but even then, I know we've had where uh, people have gone missing uh, from one province or another, and then uh, they'll, that'll get it added into this national database, like our CPIC database, and they'll be listed as a missing person, but we'll find them. Um, I remember one specific person we found in a bus terminal, and uh, they were listed as missing, but it's like all you can do, because they're a grown adult, you just go up, it's like, you're listed as missing. We're just making sure you're okay. You need any resources. Uh, can we get you anywhere? No, no, and no. They don't want to talk to you. It's like, I, not much else I can do. And all you can do is call uh, the family. And this comes down to like, well, our sweet privacy laws <laughs> around a lot of things. But you call the family and you just say like, we saw them, they're okay. And they refused any help. Mm-hmm. And that's basically all you can give the family, which feels like not a lot. It's almost like, I don't say like teasing them, but you know, you're just dangling a little bit of info in front of them. And then you're like, but that's it. Yeah. I can't give you any more because they're an adult and they have their privacy. So if they don't want to be found, they don't want to be found. And that's kind of where it ends. So it seems strange. For listeners, I will say so for context on this conversation, it's not a crime for capable adults to go missing. I can. Mm-hmm. close my laptop, stop talking to Nathan and never talk to anyone ever again and move to Hawaii and no one can do anything about that. And of course there are responsibilities that I will have that might keep me connected. Like if I don't pay my bills, I might have collections agencies calling me or um, my family and they might want to get in touch with me. But at the end of the day, there's no legal, it's not a criminal sanction. There's no criminal criminal sanction for, yeah. for a capable adult to go missing. And of course that differs for Um, vulnerable persons where there are safeguarding provisions or like children and youth, for example. But at the end of the day, that's the issue with police response to missing persons is that the police truly, for the most part, there's not too much they can do. They don't have too much authority in this space because 
um, you know, like I said, we, we can do whatever we want. We can go missing and never talk to anyone again. And there's nothing the police can do about that. And so just that little bit of context is exceptionally important to understand why missing persons is complex. And it's also important to know it's a nuanced situation. So I can choose to go missing because I want to go live in Hawaii for six months, or I might be missing because I've been kidnapped, or I might be missing because I'm being trafficked. And we don't know, for the most part, when calls come in, it's exceptionally difficult to differentiate between, you know, what is someone going missing due to miscommunication or because they're on vacation or because their cell phone died versus um, they're being trafficked by someone. And so if you can understand why that might be challenging and why it comes in as low priority, but then it ends up being a situation that they're uh, uh, being trafficked, you can see why the situation can escalate very quickly and you can see why gaps and issues happen in the police response to missing persons. Yeah. And you know what? I think everyone trying to do the best they can at the end of the day, you, you can only really go on the information you have, which is mm-hmm. what they teach us in a lot of our training. It's, it's what, you, what you knew and when you knew it and what you did with that information, right? So uh, one of the topics I want to get onto as well was about the missing murdered Indigenous women. Was that a big part of uh, your studies or anything that you've been focused on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of major... Um, incredible people doing research in this space. And there's no way for um, a missing persons researcher or even a policing researcher to do their work without engaging with Indigenous populations and any persons that are really impacted by the specific phenomenon that you're discussing. And so I have been working with a number of Indigenous groups that are doing research in this space and have um, tried to bridge linkages to uh, people in Canada. For example, at the University of Nebraska, there was a a workshop that was held on um, by Indigenous peoples on their experiences with going missing and their loved ones' experiences with going missing. And so we've kept in connection. And so my role with that is facilitating, supporting, and leveraging. And so just being that kind of funnel for amplifying their voices, their experiences, and their their work. But um, the simplified version is that my research really focuses from a like a work organizational occupational point of view, looking at process and policy and practice, kind of the boring stuff, <laughs> policing. And so um, the research itself does more of that boring side of things. But my work, my my activism and my engagement def- definitely does in- involve Indigenous peoples and, and groups. Well, and you said it was in Nebraska. So this is like, is this a Canada and US are kind of studying the same things? Because I've, I've never heard of it on their side of the border, but yeah. is it the same down there? The situation in the US is really complicated because of their policing system. Hmm. Um, and so there's a bunch of researchers in the US doing work on missing persons too. And they're also involved with the Missing Persons Research Hub. The hub is actually North America wide. And so we do chat and we do engage in work together. And um like I said, I'll do anything to amplify the voices and stories, experiences and research of people that I'm not, you know, doing, doing work on myself. So yeah, that's been part of it, bridging those connections to fill the gaps in my own work and make sure that I'm giving space to that as well. So the University of Nebraska is just one place that has that, that center for work on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls specifically. And they hold a bunch of talks and seminars on it and they get the family members in and loved ones in and they also get researchers in and hold support symposiums so that's where that comes from and how I found that was online and for anyone listening if you're interested in 
opportunities in the space and don't know how to get started, I would highly encourage you to jump online to Twitter. Although it's very annoying, it is a great space <laughs> to find um, like-minded people and opportunities to get involved in the work. And even if you're just a fly on the wall, they'll still pop up on your spaces. And that's actually how Nathan and I uh, found each other was through LinkedIn. So yeah. that's a testament to how important social media is for that stuff. Well, actually, maybe I'll give a shout out to uh, Leanne Harvey because she's the one who uh, put me onto your website and said, hey, you got to listen to what she's saying. So she's the first one who put me in touch. So yeah, thanks to her. And um, well, so kind of just staying on the the missing murder Indigenous women stuff, uh, you said you're more on, sorry, the policy side, or but it's like the activist side is where you're more engaged with it? Exactly. Yeah. So it's obviously the activism and the community engagement is a huge part of my science, as I've said, but for the actual research outputs, you're going to hear a lot about organizational theory. You're going to hear a lot about um, organizational socio- sociology, about teamwork theory, about work, occupations and professions, about what police process looks like. How does police response look? Um, what is what is the roles and functions involved in the work? Um, what are the tools and technology? So some of the like, you know, the aspects of police work. Um, and so that's more more my aim with my my research. Okay. That said, if anyone takes a quick peek at my CV, you'll see that I've done work on profiling, risk assessment, actuarialism. I've done work on um, response efforts. I've done work on using social media for investigations. I've looked at cold cases. You know, I've looked all over the board. And so I don't generally stay in that lane specifically, but that is my kind of overarching focus. But then, like I said, the community engagement side of stuff, um, it, it involves working with all different people and groups that are impacted by this. Well, I think, um, and maybe something you said a bit earlier, just talking about the policing situation in the U.S. Uh, I've had a previous guest on here, Kevin Sear, who he had a, a really good analysis between policing in Canada and U.S. And one of the points he had was, in Canada, there's something like 180 police services, roughly, across the nation. Mm-hmm. And in the U.S., there's roughly 18,000. Exactly. So I could only imagine just the amount of stats that people don't keep at all, like trying to dig things up like that, that would be almost a nightmare down there. Um, but on the activist side, uh, I'm just wondering, like, so is this like lobbying? Uh, do you go and like lobby governments? Is this like walk doing walks? Uh, like what does that kind of entail for you and, and how involved uh, do you get in that side of things? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not at the lobbying government level. I don't think I'm that important yet, but hopefully maybe one day. Um, but it involves a lot of on-the-ground work. So attending rallies, making sure you're showing up for those events that are happening in the community, uh, joining any meetings, workshops, conferences, even just informal conversations. It involves picking up the phone and connecting with people that want to hear from you and need your help. You know, activism is sometimes quiet and in the background and other times it's loud and on the streets and it really just depends on what's needed at that time and uh, what you can contribute and where you have value and so sometimes also activism is staying quiet and leveraging other people's voices and making sure that you're not taking up space and so I think it would really depend upon what it's for and um, what value I can bring to it but I would just say I kind of attack it in whatever way is appropriate for the situation. Have you seen in all the research 
and activism and everything else that you've done, are there any themes when it comes to this specific title of Indigenous women? Like, is there any other themes as in like, is there, is there common issues between uh, police and the process or what's been done in the past? And is it still continuing now? I think everything in policing is getting better, but, you know, as I mentioned earlier, it can be slow. And when things are slow and there's not public education on things, it's very frustrating for um, people in Canada to understand why things are not changing and understand what changes are happening and um, what the police are doing to, to resolve these really, really, you know, social or wicked problems in Canada. And that public education piece is huge. And when, when the public don't hear from police, they make up their own stories and conclusions in their head as they should. Yeah. And so for a long time, uh, what I know is that Indigenous groups feel like they've been screaming into the black void. You know, they've been raising these issues over and over again, and they've not been heard. And so, and when police do engage in this work, when it's community engaged in work, it eventually there's an end point to it, right? It's not sustainable. It doesn't continue over the course of, you know, whatever's needed for that situation. And it amplifies frustrations. It makes people feel like they're not being heard. It makes people feel like they're being shut out. It makes people feel like their issues and experiences are being dismissed and it's falling on deaf ears. And it makes people feel like, you know, there's no changes happening, which isn't always true, right? Like we, we are not in the system. We don't know, you know, what's happening in policing. We don't know what changes are occurring. And sometimes that public education piece is that this, that is, is that bridging factor between dissatisfaction and frustration between the public and the police versus you know, a strong or a good, at least a good relationship between the police and the community. So even if it's just, a, you know, a short message, sometimes it helps. So I think that's one of the key themes is, is um, the falling on deaf ears, the not being heard, not being acknowledged and not being responded to, and the lack of communication on any changes that are happening. I've heard has is, is been very frustrating for a lot of people, yeah. uh, for Indigenous peoples and also the families and loved ones of the missing. Um and sometimes they feel like they're not involved in the conversations that do happen when changes are happening. And sometimes it feels like it's just these executive decisions that have not been, you know, consulted with the, the appropriate persons in the community. And these are just, you know, they're people's lived experiences and they're also uh, perceptions and whether or not that's true for police, it doesn't mean that it shouldn't be um, heard because, you know, these are things that people are feeling, thinking, perceiving, and experiencing. And so it's good feedback. You know, how can you, how can you mitigate that is, is a really great thing. Yeah. It could be addressed from moving forward. Yeah. Well, even if, if you have someone's perception, at least you have somewhere to, I guess, start to inform them or educate them from. And that's where you kind of start with the, the collaborating and working with the community. I know from like a, a police perspective, the, tough point right now and at least from even my own um, experiences has been it's like you try and help one group but then another group comes along and says shouldn't be doing that um yeah. take like uh you'll see police will be marching in the pride parade and then there will be a group that says they shouldn't be marching the pride parade it's like well do you want us to interact with these groups or not with these groups and then you'll see um black lives matter i'll say don't be going into these neighborhoods these are the minorities and you pick on them and it's like well with our revolving uh door justice system all those people just get keep put uh keep getting put back 
in those communities and we get called there. So we have to be there to protect people. But it's like, you know, one day you have one group saying, you need us, we need more attention and we want you here. And then some other people from the same group, or it could be an outside group, which is not great, mm-hmm. but um, they're saying, we don't want you in there. So yeah, it's it's a, it's a definitely a tough place to be. I don't envy the job of police chiefs and <laughs> other decision makers. Mm-hmm. The one in... From a police perspective, I think I've seen a lot of, at least in the last, I'll say five to 10 years, there's been a lot of change in policing where they're trying to do all these things almost to the extent of where they're trying to be too much to too many people. And I almost want to say they're not sticking up for themselves where they say, this is a policymaker issue. This is a politician issue. They're the ones who make the change. Like we enforce the laws that they make. So if you don't want this to happen, tell them to change the laws. It's not for us to always change everything, but um, the the community engagement is definitely uh, increased a lot from what I've seen. And um, I think people also, like I, I work with our gang unit and just, I think people have a, uh, the wrong perception of how things actually play out. Like we're actually super friendly to everybody and we talk with everybody and we're out there in the community whether people are uh, super violent individuals that we know a lot about or talking to their family, we can get along with everybody. It's when they start acting up and doing things that are illegal, that's when we have to deal with them. Um, But I I think people believe uh, that the majority of interactions that police have are negative. And that's not the case. Like we're There's millions of positive interactions for every one that makes the news. And we're trying to get those kind of stories out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just, how do you get those out there and engage with people? So, yeah. But I like your points there about, you know, just making sure that the communities are heard and that, you know, if changes need to be made, we make the changes. So, mm-hmm. you made a lot of great points about the stretching of the policing mandate and the boundaries of policing. It's a huge issue. Um, we just wrote a book on this about the wicked problems of police reform. And that police reform um, is challenging because there's trickle-down issues from a lack of policy decisions, an absence of funding, and just what you said, you know, the policing mandate expanding. Police are increasingly being asked to respond to all of these human problems. It is whatever the, the community expect police to do is the policing role, which is difficult because there has to be a line somewhere. Where does it stop becoming a policing issue and start becoming another issue for someone else or some other group or some other organization or the government? And really, it begs the question, what is it that we want the police to do? Yeah. And that is something people cannot answer. Like, what do you want the police to do? And that's where a lot of that conflict that you're talking about uh, comes in. Because really, at the end of the day, a, a lot of people, I think I would say the general public, want the police to be there whenever there's a human problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and what does that mean for the police? Well, it means that there's no ability to have boundaries on the policing role. So it's a very, very topical area. It's something a lot that's been talked about a lot with the whole defunding the police conversation. And I don't think it's going to get resolved, um, you know, over the next couple of years, but I think there's going to be a lot of work happening in this space over the coming years. Well, and even how do you, you know, the topic of how you remove police from a function if they've been, so ingrained in there, like they're, they're, they've been doing it for, 
you know, say decades, or even if it's something fairly new, but once police are involved, how are you going to remove them? And then like you're saying, what are the second or third order effects of removing that person or that job? Because there's a lot of safety issues, especially with the mental health side of things. Um, the officer in BC who was clearing out the, uh, the encampments and got stabbed in the neck. Like, mm-hmm. who's going to send social workers in to do that now, right? It's like, people are getting stabbed. Well, looks like the police are coming back in. So it's just, how do you do these things safely and effectively? I think it's going to be a real tough question for anybody to answer. I don't know if any politician's up for the job because <laughs> if something goes wrong, then they're going to own it. But um, yeah, we're just c- kind of coming up to the end of our time here. So to keep you about an hour, uh, can you just tell us uh, any other projects or anything going on? Or are you just fully uh, consumed by the, the hub and the PhD side of things? Yeah, I mean, I'm always going to be doing work on policing and missing persons. Right now, we're doing a lot of work on uh, victimization connections. And uh, I'm going to be moving into a space where I'm focusing on the search and rescue side of things. So at the moment, historically, I've been focusing, like I said, on the police process, um, what response looks like, the roles, the structures, et cetera. And now I've been working a lot with search and rescue volunteers and police search and rescue. And I'm going to be extending that work in my postdoc, looking at different occupational stressors, and how that affects the work and how it affects police search and rescue personnel. So I'll still be around doing a lot of work on missing persons, but also looking at it maybe through a different lens to kind of keep extending the work, make sure that the work is expanding, the science is expanding, and we're not just continuing to write the same bunch of nonsense on the same bunch of topics to keep moving that science agenda forward. So I think, um, you know, it's it's like we talked about in the beginning, it's difficult to say where I'm going next, but I will not be uh, stopping doing work on policing missing persons and, and search and rescue. Awesome. Well, how can people follow you and your work? So what platforms are you on? I'm on LinkedIn under Lorna Ferguson. I'm on Twitter under Lorna Ferguson as well. You can find the Missing Persons Research Hub at missingpersonsresearchhub.com. You can find myself at lornaferguson.com. And I also have Google, Google Scholar, which is Lorna Ferguson. And my email address, which I'm happy to give out, is lfergu, so F-E-R-G-U-5, at uw.ca. I'm happy to hear from anyone um, that wants to chat about my work or anything that's going on or get connected. Um, I'm here for it. Awesome. I wouldn't give out my email address. Don't email me. I don't want anyone sending me stuff. <laughs> but I got different kinds of people emailing me. So, um, Fair enough. <laughs> uh, great. Well, I think that was an awesome conversation. Hey, if you could hang on the line for one second, I'll say bye offline. But thank you for coming on and educating people on this topic. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you listeners for listening in.